Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. You might recall that we began a sermon series on Romans several months ago. I think we started back in May, actually, and we took a little detour from that sermon series to do a series on Christian ethics, and we explored what the scriptures say about various ethical issues facing us as Christians. Then, of course, we just went through the Advent season, and Pastor Brian was here delivering an Advent series on the story of Joseph from the Old Testament. So very grateful for Brian's willingness to preach in my absence. And so here we are, having completed the Advent season, and so we're going to get back to Romans now and pick up where we left off a few months ago. And uh, it seems like it would be appropriate to begin this sermon by simply reviewing a little bit about where we have been in Romans, just to kind of get you caught up. Uh, If you're new or a visitor, then this will be especially helpful to you, but it's easy, I know, to forget what is preached from Sunday to Sunday. So let me get you caught up on the book of Romans. Um, Romans is uh, the greatest letter ever written, and that's the name of this sermon series. And one of the reasons it's so great is because it sums up for us so well all of the basic and most profound important components of the gospel. So here's what we have seen so far. Very quickly, Romans 1 and 2. You might recall that Paul made the case that the existence of God is plainly known to all people, that through the created order we can see and tell that God exists. And then into chapter 2, Paul goes on to talk about an uncomfortable topic, the wrath of God, and he makes the case that everybody is under the wrath of God, and that includes both so-called religious people and irreligious people, that is, those who are Jews and devoted to their religious ceremonies, but also those who were Gentiles and knew nothing about the God of the Bible. doesn't matter about your religion. Everybody under the wrath of God. That's the bad news that Paul gives us. But then in chapters 3 and 4, he moves on. Uh, in chapter 3 in particular, kind of bringing home further the message of chapters 1 and 2. No one is righteous, not even one. There's no one who does good. Paul says, but then brings relief to us in the declaration that a righteousness has been revealed. And it's not a righteousness that we produce, it's a righteousness that is given to us from God, a righteousness that he has accomplished in the person of his son Jesus, a righteousness that can be received by anyone through faith alone, so that on that basis we can know that the wrath of God in chapters 1 and 2 has been propitiated or turned away from us so that we are now the recipients and objects of his favor and love and grace. And Paul explains about the doctrine of justification, very important doctrine about the fact that God has pronounced us not guilty through faith alone and has imputed or credited to us the righteousness of Christ. It's the very heart of the gospel, the doctrine of justification. Paul spends time in chapters 3 and 4 explaining that. And then he goes on to chapters 5 and 6 and talks about this concept called federal headship. Maybe you remember that message, this very important biblical idea that we all belong to a federal head. 
either Adam, that's everybody born into this world, born with Adam as his or her federal head, and therefore sinful in Adam because of the rebellion and sin of Adam. But then there's the option to place faith in Jesus, and if we trust him, then Jesus becomes our federal head, and we are righteous in him. And so Paul sets up in chapter 5 this um, duality. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. And in chapter 6, Paul makes some very kind of startling comments. He says things like this. He says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And that introduces into our minds a very um, expected question. Well, if grace increases, the more I sin, maybe I should just sin more so that I'd get more grace. And Paul explains that that is a wrong conclusion to draw and spends chapter 6 explaining why that is. We've been placed in union with Christ. We have died to sin. We are alive to righteousness. How could you even entertain such a thought is basically Paul's argument in chapter 6. But then in chapter 6, 14, he says another kind of startling phrase. He says, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. No longer under law, but now under grace. And as we get here to chapter 7, which is where we're starting today, what Paul is doing is basically explaining what that means. What does it mean that we're not under law, but under grace? What role does the law play in the Christian's life? That's what Paul is going to spend pretty much all of chapter 7 explaining to us. Now, this might strike you as a kind of an academic theological question, but this is a question that has plagued, I guess, the church for centuries. This is a, a question that the church has wrestled with for centuries. And the two camps fall into, or we could call the two camps basically by these two names. There are some who fall into what is called legalism. Legalists emphasize the law too much. Legalists are those who are very excited about rules and regulations. And they're always looking for something else to tell you not to do. And you can't go to movies. You can't wear your clothes so long. You can't wear lipstick. You can't drink a beer. You can't do this and you can't do that. Legalists love to just pile upon the scriptures extra law. They love law. They have an interest in too much law. That's one extreme. The other extreme, though, is what's called antinomianism. No means law, it just means against law. These are people who think that the law should have really no relevance in our life. We're under grace, therefore, we don't have to obey God. We can do whatever we want, and that often leads to a life of rebellion and licentiousness. So legalism often leads to guilt. Antinomianism often leads to license. And both of those are unbiblical extremes. So as we seek to answer this question, what role does the law play in the Christian's life? It's neither of those two. It's somewhere in between, and that's what Paul is seeking to explain to us. And it's not the easiest thing, quite frankly, to explain. I wish I could just package this in a nice, tight little um, soundbite, but it's going to take a little time to explain from the Scriptures how Paul comes to this balance. So really to explain this, we need two Sundays. So we're going to do kind of part two of this next Sunday. Today we're considering the limitations of the law. 
Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the benefits of the law. And so there we have this balance that we're trying to strike. There is some way that the law is very limited. Now, as we consider this, I want us to remember what Paul says here in verse 12. If you want to just look at that, chapter 7, verse 12, Paul says the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The Bible says the law is good. It's a good thing. So tuck that in the back of your mind as we look through the first six verses of chapter 7. Because what we're going to be talking about here, and I think what Paul's explaining to us, is what the law can't do. And he's going to be seeming to kind of dismiss the law in some ways. But let's not forget, Paul says the law is holy, righteous, and good. Talk about that next week. This week, we're talking about the limitations of the law. So let's stand now for the readings of God, the reading of God's word, Romans 7, 1 through 6. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only so long as he lives? Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Lord, would you, God, would you please, God, help us to understand this passage of Scripture. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to explain this today by looking at the place that the law plays in our lives at different stages of our lives. So we're going to consider the law before we become a Christian. How does the law relate to the person who's not a Christian? And then the law when a person becomes a Christian. And then finally, how does the law work after we become Christian? So that's our three points. The first one, the law before a person becomes a Christian. Look at verse 1. And you see Paul mentioning the law right off the bat. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So immediately we have a question here in verse 1, which is what is Paul talking about here when he mentions the law? Because we have something that's called the Mosaic Law. That's the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai specifically to give to the people of Israel. The Mosaic Law is a collection of not only the Ten Commandments, but various applications of the Ten Commandments to Israel's particular social, cultural situation many centuries ago. I don't think that that's exactly what Paul is referring to here. He might have that in mind, but I think he's thinking of the law in a broader context. And we see the distinction between the Mosaic law and the eternal moral law of God that applies to everybody 
in what Paul had said back in Romans chapter 2. Maybe you remember this from this past summer, where Paul says, when Gentiles who do not have the law, now there he's referring to the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Moses, the law given to Israel, Gentiles, not part of Israel, they didn't have the law, wasn't given to them. But if they by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the Mosaic law. By doing the right thing instinctively, they show that the work of the eternal law is written on their hearts. So Paul is making an important distinction here. The Jews had the Mosaic law. The Gentiles have the eternal moral law of God in the sense that it is written on their hearts. It's not written down on a tablet or a piece of paper or a book, but it's written in their hearts. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law. It's a law that's binding on a person as long as he lives. He's saying that the law is something under which every single person comes under by being born into this world. And we are under the authority of that law until we die. We can't escape it. We can't get out from under it. And all of us know instinctively, whether you're a Christian or not, whether this is your first time in a church or not, everybody knows that a moral law exists, that there is absolute moral truth to which all of us are accountable and responsible. C.S. Lewis makes this point very clearly in the book Mere Christianity. In the first few chapters, he gives various examples of how this is true, and one of them goes like this. He says, uh, if somebody hears a man crying out for help, generally we always respond with two basic impulses. The one is the impulse to go help the person. But if that person crying out for help is in a somewhat dangerous situation, there's another impulse, which is to run away, to protect ourselves, to see danger and look the other way. So everybody, when you hear someone crying for help, has those two impulses, help or run away. But then what Lewis says is there's this third thing that then comes into our minds and kind of adjudicates the two and says, you need to go help that person. You shouldn't run away. You should run and try to help. And that third thing, according to Lewis, is the moral law of God. Anybody faced with that decision is going to at least feel some kind of tug to help the helpless person because the moral law is written on our hearts. And so that's what Paul is talking about to begin with as he introduces chapter 7. Now, how do we respond to that? Once we know that this law exists, it's in our conscience, it's written on our hearts, we feel this compelling urge to obey it, there are some who just kind of try to you know, dismiss it, I guess the secularist, you know, the pluralist, the relativist wants to say, well, uh, you know, we all can just make up morality and determine for ourselves what's right or wrong. That, that's certainly not what Paul is saying here. This moral law is binding on a person until that person dies. That's one way to respond to the law. The other way to respond to the law is to be kind of like a moralist. And I think we all have this kind of tendency in us 
to think like this. We just think, look, I know what's right to do, and I'm going to do the best I can to obey and do what is right and hope that at the end of my life, God's going to be pleased that I did the best that I can. That's, that's the moralist. I'm going to obey the law, and I can do it. I can fulfill the demands of God on my life. But notice here what Paul says in verse 6. Um, sorry, verse 5. He says, while we were living in the flesh, he's referring to the time before we were Christians, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. See, the, the law here is not a friend. The law is something that is bringing sin out of us. You know, it's just the sinful human nature that when you tell someone not to do something, they immediately want to do it. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. Tell a kid, don't put your hand on the hot stove, and they're immediately drawn to try to do that. I think that's the idea that Paul has in mind here. Sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for salvation. Is that what it says? No, to bear fruit for death, to bear fruit for death. Any attempt to save oneself through obedience to the law results in death, always. The demands of the law are too high. The law is holy and righteous and good. It's, it's really super righteous and good. I mean, it's so righteous and good that you don't stand a chance trying to obey it to save yourself. Bible says this in many places. Look at Galatians 3. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. If you don't do every bit of the law, if you don't obey every jot and tittle, you are cursed. James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point just one, just one mess up, you're accountable for all of it. It's as if you've broken every single law in the Bible. What these passages are telling us and what Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 7 is that there is one huge limitation to the law, one way at least that the law is, is hugely inadequate. It was not given to you so that you can obey it to save yourself. It was not given to you as a rule for life so that you could conform your life to it and then have confidence in your ability to please God through your obedience. That's not why the law was given. The law was not given so that you could save yourself. It was given so that you could see your need for salvation. It was given so that you would see verses like what I just read to you and you would be undone. That you would despair of your own ability to fulfill the law. To fulfill the law. That's the idea. Now, if I sent you home right now, you'd all probably be depressed for a week. But the story doesn't stop there. The law before we're Christians is just, it's just a heavy, crushing, burdensome load. Jerry Bridges says it this way, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Praise God. But your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need 
or God's grace. Your very best day still leaves you short of the law and in need of grace. That's the law before a person becomes a Christian. But what happens when a person becomes a Christian? What relationship does the law play then? And the the answer is just really one word. It's release or freedom. You you see release from the law is mentioned a couple times. Verse 2, she is released from the law of marriage. Verse 6, we now are released from the law. And verse 5, he doesn't use the word release, but free. She is freed from the law. So what Paul does here is he uses the illustration of marriage to get the point across about how it is that a person becomes released from the law when he or she becomes a Christian. So what he does is he takes a marriage relationship, the relationship between a man and a wife, and compares it to the relationship between a person and the law. And you'll see in verses 2 and 4 what what he says here. He says in in verse 2, he says, A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. I mean, it's just common sense, isn't it? I mean, a woman is married to a husband. She's bound to that husband, obligated to him until he dies. And once he dies, then she is freed from all obligation to that man. Now, obviously, we know that divorce exists and divorce happens. And so, you know, don't be too hard on Paul here. He has the ideal of marriage in mind, as God intended it, to be a lifelong commitment. But only when the husband dies, according to Paul here, is the wife released from her obligation to him. So in verse 3, she, he explains more. Uh, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive because she's still obligated to that husband. The rule of marriage still applies to her. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she hasn't done anything wrong. She's not in sin. She's not an adulteress. Again, because she's been released from the law of marriage. Now, what Paul does is says, okay, that's a picture of what it's like when a person becomes a Christian. That's what it's like for a Christian in relation to the law. Now, the metaphor shifts a little bit in verse 4. He's not referring to the husband dying, but he shifts it and says, Christian, you're the one who has died. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers... You also have died. You have died. So, you know, he's changing the metaphor. Some commentators are kind of bothered by that. You know, again, I just think, you know, we get the point, what Paul is trying to say here. No analogy or metaphor is precise and perfect. But Paul is drawing this comparison. Christian, you have died to the law. It's not the husband dying, it's you, Christian, you have died. So as the wife is released from the law of marriage, so the Christian is released from the moral law when that person becomes a believer and places faith in Jesus. Now, when did the Christian die? Paul's not saying that it's, you're released from the law when you pass away at the end of your life. 
That, that would be bad news. Then you'd be under the crushing weight of the law your whole life until you die, and the only freedom would be your own death. But no, there's better news for us today. In verse 4, again, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. How have we died? Through the body of Christ. We have died through the work of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, in His body, which lived on this earth 2,000 years ago, which we've been talking about here over the Christmas season, born in a manger and living on this earth as a human being. That's what the body of Christ means. What Paul's telling us here, as we look at other portions of Scripture, what we see is that when Jesus came into the world, He placed Himself under the authority of the law. He willingly took on the authority of the law, submitted himself to it, and in his life he obeyed it fully and completely. And every thought, word, and deed. And when he went to the cross, he took upon himself the curse of the law, the curses that we saw in James and Galatians that all of us are under because we fail to obey the law, because we've broken it a lot more than just one time, but countless times, and we're all under that curse. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curse that you and I deserve was placed on Him. He was cursed. And then when He was risen from the dead, it was like a declaration to all the world that Jesus Christ has overcome the authority of the law that the law no longer makes any demands on him, he is totally freed from it. He's obeyed it, he's taken the curse of the law, and he is resurrected in glory as a sign of his complete, total, satisfactory fulfillment of every jot and tittle of God's law. Now, <clears throat> here's the remarkable thing. Here's, here's where this gets really good. <laughs> And it's this, because of this thing we call the union with Christ that we saw in chapter 6, that, that you are united to Christ in faith, what Paul is saying here is that everything that is said, everything that I just said about Jesus is also said of you. They're just as true of you as they are of Jesus. It's as if you did everything Jesus did. It's as if you obeyed the law perfectly and took upon yourself the curse of the law and was resurrected from the dead. Because spiritually speaking, in a mysterious way, that's exactly what is true of the Christian. The Christian has died to Christ and has risen from the dead, and we are in union with Him. So that everything true of Him is true of us. And the result of that is that we are released from the law. We're released. We're free. When we were in East Asia, we went to a monastery right outside one of the cities where we were, and we saw this. Um, it was a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. And we saw these people just doing all these repetitive motions. And we saw this one lady. They have these things called prayer wheels. You spin these wheels, and in, the, in, in their belief, the more you spin the wheels, the more merit you earn with God. And some of the wheels are really small. You can hold them in your hand and spin them. And some of these wheels are huge. They're like this big around. And we saw this woman at the monastery who was walking alongside all of these wheels. There's a huge row of them. And she was taking, she took three steps, stopped, got down on her knees, laid down on her stomach, stretched her hands out over her head, touched her forehead to the ground, got back on her knees, stood straight up, spun the prayer wheel, took three more steps, 
got down on her knees, got down on her stomach, put her head to the ground, put her hands out, forehead to the ground, back on her knees, stood up, spun the prayer wheel, three more steps, got down on her knees, got down on her stomach, etc., etc., over and over and over again. That's a person who is imprisoned, captive to this idea that she can do enough to please God. And if you look at what it says in verse 6, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Here's the limit of the law for the Christian. When you place faith in Jesus, the law cannot curse you any longer. The law cannot condemn you. The law cannot bring judgment upon you. Whenever I ask a person, are you a Christian, or do you know that you're going to heaven, and they say something like, well, I'm doing the best I can, or I'm not sure I'm good enough, or I I think I'm getting there, I think I'm improving Whenever anybody says something like that as a reason to think they're Christians, I I know right away they don't understand what it is to be released from the law. They're not released from the law. They're still living under the law. They're still enslaved by the law. They're still captive to the law. And so my question to you today is, is that you? Are you captive to the law or have you experienced release in the gospel? Such glorious news. Release from the law. You don't have to save yourself. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to reform yourself. You don't have to make yourself fit for God. The gospel says Jesus has already made you fit in his life, death, and resurrection. So that's the role of the law when a person becomes a Christian. Release. Okay? Last thing. The law now after a person becomes a Christian. How does this work? What role should the law have in our lives once we become believers? And here again we see a limitation of the law. Because just as the law cannot justify you, it also can't sanctify you. And just as the law can't get you saved, the law also cannot keep you saved. So, I mean, I think most of us understand we are not saved by obedience to the law. I think most people get that. But I think where we fall into error is so many of us think that salvation is by grace, but growth in my faith is now by my hard work. Now, you do have to put forth effort. And the law does serve as a guide for us as we grow in our faith. But we can't resort back to this total reliance on our own obedience to the law as a power for our sanctification. Or we're going to be completely frustrated. We're going to be worn out. It's going to be like running on a a treadmill your whole life. Isn't that the way it feels sometimes being a Christian? You just can't get ahead. Just, I didn't read my Bible enough, I didn't pray enough, I didn't evangelize enough, I'm not doing enough. And we're just overwhelmed and we're sunk below the crushing load of the law again. And what we have here is this wonderful teaching that 
not even our growth is related entirely to obedience to the law. I want you, I, I, this is where I have to be very careful. I'm not saying that the law doesn't play a part in our growth. It does. I'm not saying we don't have to put forth effort, because we do. We'll talk about that more next week. But it's like, ultimately, what are we, are we relying on? How do we bear fruit after becoming a Christian? And <clears throat> I, I think the answer to that is in verse 4. How do we bear fruit? Likewise, my brothers... Look what he says, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To whom? To him who has been raised from the dead. Who's that? That's Jesus. In order that we may bear fruit for God. In keeping with this marriage metaphor, it seems like what Paul is saying here is that when you become a Christian, you belong to Christ in a new way. In other words, what he's saying is, this is something that can be said of the Christian. If you're a believer, here's what is true about you. According to this passage, you are married to Jesus. Jesus is your husband. That's what Paul is saying. And as we grasp that and believe it and receive it, and meditate on it, and become preoccupied with it. That's how we bear fruit. You belong to another in order that we may bear fruit for God. It's thinking about who you really are. Jesus is your spouse. It's like Jesus took you to the altar and said to you, Christian, and said, I promise and I covenant to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's a vow that Jesus has made to you. And you know what? Death isn't going to interrupt that relationship because Jesus has already died. He's risen from the dead. He's not going to die again. In Jesus, you have the only spouse who is never going to leave you. The only relationship that is absolutely inseparable. In Jesus, you have a spouse who will never misunderstand you, never abuse you, never mistreat you, and never leave you. He's made a vow. He's committed. He's in it for the long haul with you. And what Paul is saying is, man, if you get that, that's what's going to bear fruit. That's where fruit is going to be born from your heart. That's what's going to give you, then, the desire to obey the law. If you question, what are you talking about? Jesus' husband, that sounds weird. Well, Isaiah 54, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Hosea, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will be called my husband. It's actually quite frequent that the gospel gets compared to the marriage relationship. And so, John Stott sums this up very well. He says, why do we serve? Why do we seek to obey God? It's not because the law is our master, and we have to, but because Christ is our husband, and we want to. Not because obedience leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to obedience. Now, you can, you can read your Bible, not, not because you have to, not because God's going to turn away from you if you don't, but because you want to. He's your husband. You love him. You want to know him. Now you go to prayer, not because you have to, but because you want to. 
Just like any healthy marriage involves a sharing of each other's hearts. Well, you want to share your heart with God, so you go to prayer because you want to. And you come to worship on Sunday morning, not because you have to, but because you want to give praise to this God who has saved you in such a gracious and wonderful way. So, in summary, what Paul is telling us here is before a person becomes a Christian, the law is a heavy crushing load that leaves us condemned. But when a person becomes a Christian, there is glorious release from the condemnation of the law. And now, after we become a Christian, in verse 6, he says that we serve in a new way now. It, it's, a, it's a way of the Spirit. The Spirit has changed our hearts. Our hearts are warmed by the gospel. And we get to this point where we can say, along with Matthew, Matthew Henry, that our duty is now our delight. That's what the gospel does. Mere obedience to the law can't get you there, even though the law serves a very good purpose, which we'll see next week. But thank God, praise Him, that Mount Sinai's flames have been put out. We're going to sing about that now as we sing Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. So let's pray. God in heaven, we praise you for the goodness of your gospel, freedom from your law. Give us hearts to obey you, not because we have to, but because we want to. In Jesus' name. Amen.